0: here we go. Brahmaviharas. there's four. The first one's love. The second one is compassion, is that capacity <coughs> for us to feel and care for the suffering of ourselves or others. The third one is sympathetic joy, meaning it's not just the capacity to feel joy, but the capacity to feel joy for another person's joy. And the fourth of the brahmaviharas Viharas is equanimity, the ability to be at peace with life, to be at peace and balance. So of these four, you may have heard that one is considered to be the queen or the king of the Brahma Viharas on a higher throne. And you may think, well, of course, it's love. Everybody knows the queen would be love. And and some people are going, no, it's not love. So other people might think, well, (laughs) obviously it's compassion. Compassion has to be the queen. Are people going, no, okay, no, it's not compassion. I think you've heard this before. It's equanimity. It feels like the air conditioner just went on. (laughs) Did anybody else feel that? Cold wind blow through? (laughs) Could we? (laughs) This is equanimity. Ah, (laughs) middle of winter, bronchitis, air conditioner. So, um, ah... We just want to. What's the name of the person who's the manager? Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca, is Rebecca here? Somebody. Maybe we should really be aware that the air conditioner not be on. (laughs) Okay. So the reason that um, the reason that equanimity is sitting in this royal position of the highest Brahmavihara is because it brings a quality of balance. It balances the other Brahmaviharas. And they are all, the Brahmaviharas are interwoven with each other. There's compassion inside of equanimity, and that compassion brings a quality of warmth and connectedness into the equanimity. But the equanimity brings balance to all of the Viharas, and it's equanimity that allows these divine abodes to be boundless states of consciousness, boundless love for all beings, limitless compassion. It's the factor of equanimity that creates this vast spaciousness. So it is the queen. So, the, the heart, the natural heart of loving-kindness that, that we've all felt many times being human naturally wishes. It just can't help itself, it just wishes, may all beings be healthy, may all beings be happy and safe. That's the natural <laughs> flow of the open heart of loving-kindness and it's a beautiful and a, and a completely right thing to feel and wish. Equanimity, who is the wisdom voice, says here on planet earth, not every being is healthy and safe and happy. And equanimity is at peace with the truth of how things are. Equanimity doesn't fight the laws of nature. So, this idea of being with life as it is uh, is is the essence of equanimity. Equanimity understands the laws of of birth and death, the law of nature, and understands the, the law of karma. So there's a way. Uh, there's something that we gain when we rest in equanimity about being able to really ah that's true not everyone is happy on this earth ah it's just how it is so and not not all of us are always happy and can we be at peace with how it is right now so it's a beautiful idea and concept this equanimity and and we humans, uh, especially we Americans, spend most of our time, energy, and money doing everything possible, you know, to um, not accept it as it is, to trying to change the laws of the universe. And when I turned 50, I got this stack of cards that were jokes about getting old. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's fun, and it's fun to play with, and it's fun to just see how uh, our American Western preference is, you know, that... But getting old is bad but, but I'll just read you a few lines Out of these cards This one's really a silly one There's Sort of a fat w- old woman With gray hair it says There are products that can make you feel like a kid again They're called hallucinogens <laughs> 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 uh, Birthdays are like cleaning the oven But without the fun <laughs> I like that one Okay, this one, I don't know if I can transmit it to you because it's really a visual thing, but I'll try to give you the image. There's this baffled doctor looking at his, his little board with this look on his face. And there's this really weird looking woman with this completely alarmed look on her face because her whole mouth and lips are missing and completely sucked in and strange and her teeth are sort of hanging out her face. And then there's these huge lumpy bulbs all around her hips. Now, listen really close. The doctor says, my, that was a typo. So you were expecting the collagen ejection in your lips and the liposuction in your <laughs> hips. <laughs> 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 I know. It's fun. <laughs> uh, uh. Yes. So we... Yes, and that, that whole topic just brings up in a humorous and light way so we can play with just how it is, how it is that we resist <coughs> how the laws of nature are. You know, in this room alone, billions of dollars have been spent on creams and potions and lotions and supplements, you know, everything. Uh, me too. Equanimity. So uh, when I was a little girl, My older brother, he's four years older, he could ski on a single water ski. So when I was like eight or seven or something, I thought, well, he could do it, I can do it. That sort of thing, I have a little kid. So I'm trying to ski on a single water ski. But (laughs) every time I got up and I could could be on it right behind the boat, but every time I saw even the tiniest little wave coming, I'd see it coming, (laughs) I'd just panic. And the little wave would get to me and I'd just fall over. And, and what would happen was that I'd see this little wave coming and I would just try too hard and I'd get really tense and then, you know, splash. And this happened over and over until finally my f- big brother and his friends, you know, who were having a lot of fun with watching me splash and splash and splash, finally said, you know, you, you have to relax. You're trying too hard. So, <coughs> and then, you know, of course, for those of us that ever learned any, anything like bicycle riding or water skiing, Once you learn it and you practice it, like when I learned to water ski, then once I learned to relax, I learned balance. And then I could go over the little waves and the big waves, I actually learned to have fun with jumping over the waves. So equanimity is this quality of inner balance, quality that brings inner balance. And it helps us move through the various um, storms or calms of life with stability. But it's not a rigid kind of stability. Equanimity is an open <coughs> composure, a flexibility that brings about this balance. So we cultivate equanimity. Every time we're doing mindfulness meditation, every single time, because for those of you who may be new, a moment of mindfulness is a moment when we bring our awareness completely here, present, right in this moment, and we just see what is so right now. So maybe what is so right now is, is restless. Maybe I feel restless and my skin feels like I have zillions of little bugs crawling on it. Okay, so mindfulness sees just what is so, and then ah, opens, allows it. Mindfulness is about non-judging and non-grasping and non-aversion, and it's just a moment. So it's ah, restlessness, oh, bugs crawling. Mm -hmm. Ah, just that moment, that little moment of just seeing clearly what is true this moment and ah, allowing it is cultivating, is building our capacity to experience equanimity. (coughs) So this beautiful quality equanimity grows as we in practice and in our daily life learn to let things be (coughs) as they are. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Just let things be as they are. You know, try it for five minutes, huh? So in case anybody is thinking this is starting to sound like it would be a really apathetic way to live, you know, just let it be, you know, something's happening, don't deal with it. Um, I'll tell you a story about Ajin jimnian I know many, many of you <coughs> have experienced the the... <laughs> fabulous, eccentric, <coughs> wonderful um, meditation master, Ajahn Jemnian. Uh, he has been to Spirit Rock a number of times. I've been to his monastery in Thailand a few times to practice with him. And he is an extraordinary being in his late 60s. He is renowned and beloved, uh, gifted in so many ways. He's just radiating with love and joy. He's just <laughs> he just pours out blessings, and he embodies and teaches equanimity and everything that he does and says. He, I mean, nothing ruffles this guy. He's he's quite a person, <laughs> um, and and like I said, he's eccentric. He's always sort of got this little giggle kind of right either on the surface or just coming out. He's just got so much natural joy flowing and he, g- and it's contagious. So I always recommend come see Ajim Jimmy when he comes to Spirit Rock in May or June. So he doesn't speak, he only has a few words of English. And he was coming his first time to come to this class, Monday night class, you may have been here, the f- his first time he came. And um, he came in from behind, he sort of did an entrance because these high monks, you bow and they enter and you sometimes bow on the on the floor so he does his entry and everybody's seeing this monk and his robes coming in and from the very back of the room all the way to the front he's a large man he's he's coming and he has this sort of blessing water and he's just beaming he's going empty empty happy happy empty empty happy happy and by the time he got up to this Everybody was empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he had just blessed everyone, and he's just, like I said, fabulously eccentric. <coughs> not very many people would make an entrance like that their very first time in America. <coughs> <laughs> but Ajin Jimnian would. <coughs> and he's always telling wacky, weird stories. And, uh, like, this is not that wacky, but he says, um, he says, well if the people come and bring food, very good, I can eat, I like food. He said, if the people don't come, if they don't bring any food, very good, I need a diet. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so he's, he's just, he's just gemini and he's fantastic. And uh, he, just to give you a little more flavor of him at age 60, whatever, seven or something, he sleeps maybe two or three hours a night and sometimes there'll be weeks or months where he doesn't bother to sleep, <laughs> a highly developed being. Because, and I've been there, I've been at the monastery and watched this happen, he lives in non-stop, continual service to people who come from all around to receive his guidance and blessing. And basically, after he's given Dharma talks and led chanting and run his community and talked to the monks and everybody and all the work that it is to run a huge monastery, people from all around the world make this line. And, and, le- and sometimes people have appointments. And however long the line is, he keeps going and keeps, and it's two in the morning, three in the morning, I finally go to bed, I'm dying, I'm dead, di- because you know, the chanting starts at 4.30 or something. You know, and he just keeps going until the line isn't there. And that's how he lives, just in continual outpouring. So some many years ago um, in Thailand, in the area where his monastery is, South (coughs) South Thailand, (coughs) there was a serious um, problem, a war, between some communist rebels and the Thai government. So Ajin Jeminiion was working to mediate between these groups and actually befriending people on both sides, but <coughs> um, <a coughs> and he was risking his life to do this. It was a very, very dangerous situation, and there's a lot of guerrillas and lots and lots of violence going on. And um, someone got word to him that the commander of the rebel group was on his way to the monastery to kill Ajin And Ajin was seemingly pretty unruffled and he said, okay, well take me, uh, drive me to his house. And everybody's going, oh, you don't get this, we're getting out of here, we're, you know. He says, no, drive me to the house. So, you know, he's Ajin So they drove him to the house of the commander at 11 o'clock at night. And he knocks with his beaming, you know, knocks on the door. And the young daughter and the the wife answer the door, and they both know who he is, and they both, this is like 60 miles away from his monastery. (coughs) Um, They say, what are you doing here? Don't you know that right now, the girl says, my father's out trying to kill you? And Ajahn Jimnian says, yes, I know that, but I'm not afraid. I came here because I'm trying to get out of his way, because I don't want him to have to take on the heavy karma of killing a monk. And she said, well, how can you be in the home of somebody who's trying to kill you and not be afraid and say you're at peace? And he said, I have different parents than you have. He said, when I was a child like you, I had parents like you. But when I grew up, I took new parents. My father is the Buddha, and my mother is compassion, and they keep me. From being afraid of anything, and they keep me free. And so, um, he's a talker. If you ever come to be with him, he <laughs> he loves to talk, and he's talking and talking, and and the and the people uh, uh, there at the house are falling in love with him. And so they go in the middle of the night and they get the neighbor She said, "You got to see this. This guy's amazing." So, and he is. So pretty soon the house in the middle of the night is full of people and Ajahn Jemnian is offering breath- blessings and rituals for their protection, their safety. And then he does a ritual so that they can take new parents. And then after the ritual he says, now this is very good. Now we have the same parents, so now we're family. And now we can learn to work in a community. When we have differences, we can find a better way than killing each other. And so they, these people you know, liked and loved Ajin Jimnian, and they felt a connection. And so it's now almost morning but it's still dark and they give him a ride back to his monastery where the commander is waiting to kill him. And Ajahn Jimnian goes looking for the commander and finds him. He said, please come and sit down. And, um, and <laughs> he says, this is how it was translated, he said to the commander, your daughter is now my daughter but your wife is still your wife <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so at that the commander cracked up and then they were friends <laughs> this is how Ajahn Jemnian tells the story he said then they laughed and we were friends so <laughs> so uh, this is such an Ajahn Jemnian story it's true too people asked him um, what made him decide to take such a dangerous risk And he said, I decided to do what felt like the most compassionate thing. He said, you can be compassionate no matter what if you rest in the deathless. (coughs) Now that's the power of the story. So you can feel in this story the compassion. It's a story about compassionate action. But can you feel the equanimity in the story? You feel that? Yeah, it's a profound story about deep equanimity. It's the depth of Ajahn Jemnian's equanimity that brings him to be at peace with life or with death. That is a power. He He's so stable in his equanimity that he could remain calm and compassionate even in a life-threatening circumstance. That's really stability. When we were bombing the former Yugoslavia, I asked him a question. I said, Dr. Jemian, tell us how you you live on the inside with the immense amount of suffering and injustice that happens every single day in the world. How do you deal with that? And he said, compassion must be balanced with equanimity. Compassion must be balanced with equanimity. He said, if we can help, we help. If we cannot help, we rest in equanimity. We rest in the way things are. He said, I will not be able to stop the bombing, but I can make sure that there is no war inside of myself, and I can work to end war in my family and in my community, and I can work to create peaceful relationships. Another time he said, compassion and without equanimity is like trying to eat a tropical fruit that has bitter skin. He said, compassion just wants to eat the whole fruit, but equanimity knows that it can't. So in the text, equanimity is often likened to a mountain, that, that the mountain can just rest in peace. Even if there's a wild storm howling and wind blowing and sleet and, s- and ice and rain and snow, the mountain is just there at peace, unshakable, unshakable in this calm and balance. And great teachers like Ajahn Jimnian, like the Dalai Lama, are mountains of equanimity. And if you're around these great beings, you can feel I once described the Dalai Lama. Someone said, what was it like to sit that close to him? I said, it was like a mountain. There's just a great mountain of peace that you sense nothing is gonna, nothing's gonna mess that up. The value of these great teachers, these great mountains of equanimity there sh- is they're reminding of, uh, us of something so important. They're showing us that equanimity is not weak at all. It's not apathetic. It's not passive. But in fact, equanimity is a power. It's a power. And it gives the strength for the deepest compassionate action. Another one of these wacky, Buddhist (coughs) stories. This is a whole book of the death stories of Zen masters, which really, it's really great to hear what people do right before they die when they're enlightened. So (laughs) (laughs) this is Master Ho Fuku. The master called his monks together and said, during the last week my energy has been mm, dropping, certainly no cause for worry, it's just that death is near. One, one monk asked you're about to die what's the meaning of that will we continue living and what's the meaning of that and the master said they're both the way and the monk said but how can I reconcile those two and Ho-Fu-Ku answered well when it rains it pours and he wrapped his legs in full lotus and calmly died <laughs> 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 That's equanimity. <laughs> oh, well. Adios. <coughs> so, it's, it's actually <laughs> wonderful to hear the stories of these great enlightened masters who are monks in their robes, living their wildly liberated lives and embodying and expressing equanimity and compassion. And I also think it's equally valuable for us to hear the stories of householders who are working to be with life as it is in the life we live in this western fast lane that we live in. So. I don't know how many of you read Tricycle, but one of our Sangha members, Ann Cushman, is a really great writer and she had an article in Tricycle uh, on spiritual, the parenting as a spiritual practice. And at the beginning of the article, she started by saying that when her little baby a boy, Skye, was two weeks old, she ate some beans for dinner and then nursed him and the baby was up screaming and bright red and just all night long he never went to sleep he screamed all night long and it was so traumatic for her and in the morning you know talking to all these different healthcare people and she talked to a nutritionist who said uh, not to worry that if she stopped eating if she just only stopped eating dairy, wheat, yeast, soy, corn, beans, garlic, (laughs) onions, tomatoes, sugar, pepper, broccoli, citrus, fruit and possibly uh, dropping mushrooms and fish and eggs she wouldn't have anything to worry about (laughs) And she said, it was about this time that I had decided that I embarked upon an intensive meditation retreat. I, this is a long article, but I just chopped out a few sentences here and there, so you'll notice that it doesn't flow like an article. Um, <clears throat> like all great spiritual practices, these were exquisitely designed to rattle the cage of my ego. They smashed through, the con- through my concepts about how things should be, like rocking in the garden, Swing by the lavender bush, watching the hummingbirds, while my newborn slept in a bassinet by my feet, <laughs> and they pried open my heart to the way things actually are. Standing by the diaper table, flexing one tiny knee after another into Sky's colicky tummy, and cheering when a mustard yellow f- fountain erupted <laughs> from his behind. <laughs> she said last week, one of my best friends left to study the Pasna in Burma. I stayed home to study the effects of mashed banana on sky stools. Mm. (laughs) The most compelling question for me of all is, can mothering really be a path of practice every bit as valid as the monastic path? Can suctioning the snot from a sick baby's nose have the simplicity and purity of a nun's prostrations? <clears throat> for me, mothering has been the b- deepest practice I've ever taken on. Motherhood is a constant assault on my ingrained selfishness, a wake-up call to the snoozing bodhisattva within. <laughs> when I wake up to the sound of a cry at midnight, I can resent Skye for breaking into my dreams, or I can rock him in the dark, milk pouring out of me, and let myself soak in the intimacy of a moment so precious and fleeting that it breaks my heart wide open. <clears throat> Could there be any better way to get my nose rubbed in the truth of impermanence than to love a child in this jagged and careless world? I don't mean to be grandiose. I, the, I know these insights are not the pristine diamond of samadhi. They're a sloppier, stickier kind of realization covered with drool and cheerio crumbs. (laughs) But maybe this is the gift of mothering as a practice. A kind of inclusivity that embraces chaos and grit and imperfection. It's not based on being in control or on keeping things tidy. Yes, many people can relate to that. <coughs> <coughs> so every time <coughs> that she embraces the, the grit and the whatever it was, chaos, she is cultivating equanimity. And every time she's uh, willing to love this precious one while well aware of impermanence, she's cultivating equanimity. And every time in this rigorous and sacred practice of mothering that she surrenders to just how it is in this moment, she is practicing equanimity. So our, this equanimity, this divine abode, develops over years through our sitting practice and through mindful living, through moment after moment of being with life and being awake. Bra- uh, it can also be cultivated like the other Brahma Viharas as a meditation practice where you repeat specific phrases. For instance, in the f- for metta or loving-kindness, You repeat the phrase, may all beings be happy, may all beings be healthy and well. So um, one of the main traditional phrases that's used to cultivate equanimity (coughs) is each being is the owner of their own karma or the heir of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions not on my wishes for them." When I first heard this years ago, I was really put off. And you may be thinking, oh, God, that just doesn't sound very compassionate. <laughs> um, I was put off. I thought, no, this is an invitation to people to use, to blame people for their suffering. No, well, it's your fault, or, or worse yet, to rationalize what is called the near enemy, of equanimity which is indifference and I, I thought when i heard that thing i thought well you know it must be a mistranslation i don't know. had my had my apathyness about it but and i chose not to use that and i cho- there's other traditional phrases and i chose to use them i could connect with them like may i or others be at peace with amidst the changes of life i could definitely you know i could wish that without having this uppity feeling. (coughs) So I was at a retreat, sitting a retreat, six weeks um, of intensive metta, or when I say metta is the translation for loving kindness. So I was doing six weeks of metta meditation, which is a very beautiful and intensive practice. I know numbers of you in this room have done this, where um, you just sit and walk and eat while repeating and concentrating on these specific phrases. And it's very, very beautiful what happens in this process. And you go through these various categories. So as we were getting near the category, it was about five weeks into the retreat, the category of the difficult person. You go through yourself and a benefactor and neutral people, all different people. We're getting to the difficult person. Mm. And I knew who I was going to (coughs) pick. It was my dear, sweet, beloved, little 105-year-old grandma who who I totally um, loved all my life. And um, she was just a great, sweet little grandma my whole life. But from about the time she was around 92 or 93, understandable, (laughs) she's pretty old, she became inconsolably miserable. And, and she was just old and kept getting older and older. <laughs> and it went on and on. And, uh, <laughs> and for her, it just went on and on. You know, it was, it was too long. And there was nothing wrong with her. She had no diseases. She was not one iota senile. She was more clear in her mind than me. But she was physically, emotionally, and spiritually uncomfortable and I would even use the word hell realm I believe she was dealing with just some it was horrible for her so <coughs> just a minute I tried everything in the world to help her and I and she lived in a different city I flew to help her I tried to arrange when I wasn't there for every kind of help in the world for her but for me as you know a helper type it was Hard, really hard. I was putting it mildly. It was getting harder and harder because the years were carrying on and on um, to not be able to help this person I love, and she was really pulling on me for that help. And uh, I just noticed that I was—it was harder and harder to keep my heart open. And uh, and so when we had the chance to work with a difficult person at the Meta uh, retreat, I of course thought, well, yes, this is a good chance to. Rejuvenate my connection. All my life, and all the way the 105, I called her Nana B. So I will now refer to her as Nana B. Um, <coughs> so Nana i uh, I'm doing this. This I changed the phrases for Nana B. I didn't want to do "May you be healthy and <laughs> 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 be safe." Ah, you know, I said, "May you live and die in peace, <laughs> and may you always know that you are loved." And I just, you know, he's visualizing this and pouring this on. I felt so much love and such a tremendous deep connection for, with her. And just the five and a half weeks of meditation alone is a pretty altered state. So um, about two days into this hanging out with my Nana B in love, I'm walking, slow walking, very slow if you've ever been to retreat, by mm-hmm. the board. And there's my name which was a very alarming experience after five weeks to even see my name on the board, like, ah, a note, you know. So I open this note. It says, your grandmother is in critical condition in ICU. Please call. So I close the note, and I'm going, go, Nana, you know, (laughs) because she'd been talking to me for years, begging to die, praying to die, asking why God was punishing her by making her hang around so so this this seemed like her window you know I'm going go girl you know and I'm, I'm walking to the phone booth saying you know may you live and die in peace you know may you know you. Lo-. so then I get involved in all these phone calls out of five and a half weeks of intense silent meditation practice suddenly I'm on airlines and I'm talking to doctors and nurses is a bit rattling so and I had to make the decision was I gonna leave this retreat four days early to go be with the person who has her doctor even admitted she never dies. You know, <laughs> No matter how many times I ran to San Diego she never dies so if I leave this retreat you know. Anyway so I'm, I'm the teacher I was working with recommended that I do the equanimity meditation with the phrase each being is the heir to their own karma and I knew it was right so I go back into the meditation hall, and I begin doing this. And instead of getting cut off and going into this cold indifference that I thought that phrase might bring up, I I realized, I saw so clearly suddenly how overly responsible I had come to feel about her suffering. I realized how identified I had become as the helper, the person who could fix it, the caretaker. And I saw, I just, I saw so much that I loved her genuinely and dearly, but that I could not take away her suffering. This, This meditation practice served me, it was such a gift. As soon as I was able to see that and let go of the agenda I had for her, come on, you know, change, you know, and the agenda I had for me, then there was this spaciousness of equanimity. And what was so important for me to learn, which certainly the Buddha knew, Ajahn Jimny knew, but I needed to learn it from the inside, was that by doing that and being in equanimity with my grandmother, I felt the deepest compassion and the deepest love. For her that I had ever felt. The equanimity, just as the Buddhist said, deepens our sense of care and compassion. It doesn't create the indifference. That was a powerful and beautiful gift to receive. So I left the retreat two days early and I had a wonderful last visit with her and such an amazing thing. She had finally relaxed her self-hatred and she had let go of this fear that she had been stuck in uh, uh, that she was going to go to hell and be punished by this mean and punishing God. So for the last about eight days of her long, long incarnation, she got to live out of love instead of out of fear. It was so beautiful and um, she died gracefully. So another adios, adios Nana B. So part of our path includes going out of balance. I was out of balance with her. I had gone into the near enemy of compassion, which was over involvement and attachment. Um, we got a balance and we come and we practice brings us back into balance. So some of us will naturally slip off the cliff in the direction of the near enemy of love or compassion, which means the attachment and the over-involvement and the overwhelm. And there's other people because of their temperament, they'll slip off the cliff to the near enemy of equanimity, which is the cool detached indifference. (coughs) And it's our uh, practice to Pay attention. This practice is all about seeing clearly and paying attention. And when we notice that we've, that we've become way too uh, involved, attached to the outcome, or when we noticed when we've become way too cool and we're not caring and everything just sort of over there, then we realize, oh, I need to bring this back into balance. And we are able to call on the tools that help us to reconnect, help us to come back to balance. So this whole thing, hearing about balance, doesn't mean that it all sort of evens out to this dial tone of sort of no feelings, no reaction. Uh, In fact, there are times when we have equanimity about not having equanimity. Know what I mean? you get it? Yeah. I'll tell you an amazing story about that. My friend, who many of you who've you know, been with me in many talks over the years have heard me quoting from Jennifer Wellwood. She gave me permission to use her name in this story. Uh, Jennifer's an amazing person, a s- Dharma teacher and a 30-plus year meditation practitioner and a deep, deep well of a being. And, uh, and a dear, dear friend of mine, and last summer was diagnosed with breast cancer and for the first few weeks when I talked to her or visit her, what was going on for her was intense grief and fear. Um, she said that she felt like every vision that she would ever had of herself and how she was and how she was supposed to be and her body and her future, everything was being annihilated and it was being annihilated partly because there was a terror not a little fear a terror <coughs> of death that was being uncovered that she never knew was in there after this 30 years of deep deep practice and she i was so moved by her courage her equanimity with this terror so her her willingness to sit with what she called radical insecurity and she sat with it and she allowed it and she felt it she didn't try to anesthetize herself with nice spiritual comforting concepts or she didn't use the ideal of equanimity to to be a should, you know I should be acting like this. She actually allowed herself she gave herself to the experience that she was actually having She had deep enough trust and and a deeper equanimity than the intense emotion to be with her experience at a very, very deep level. And when, so about six or eight weeks after her surgery, I went to visit and I walked into her home and I felt like I was entering a still, still meditation temple. It was so silent and holy in her house and I sat down and I said how are you doing and she just felt like I could practically look through her she was so open and she just had tears in her eyes and she said oh this is has been the most grueling and the most awakening experience I have ever been through and then I actually wrote down what she said I asked her if I could this next piece and here's her words she said after weeks of wrathful deconstruction now I'm feeling immense peace about whatever may happen from deep within I know that it's okay if I live and it's okay if I die she said I feel held by the web of life that goes beyond birth and death through vulnerability I found my center of gravity in the groundless ground and here's a poem she wrote before this event but listen to this know the silence that lives at the depth of all things now the dissonance of the world cannot overwhelm you. Know the radiance that shines forth as the nature of all things. Now you can face into the darkness and not waver. Know the vastness that everywhere is the truth of all things. And now the small cares of your life no longer crush you. Know yourself. Nakedly, oh bright expanse of wakefulness, now you are anchored amidst the tides of self forgetting. <coughs> so I tell her story to remind us that equanimity can be developed when the mind is like. A lake that is, has no wind, just like a still lake. And equanimity can also be developed when the mind is like a wild raging river. Equanimity is developed when we're able to be with what is actually happening. So our task is not to learn to act cool and to look like some, you know, unruffled Buddhist. You know, heaven forbid that. Um, (laughs) The invitation is to become a ripe and whole human being. A mature (coughs) human being is someone who can be with the joys and the sorrows of life, all the joys and sorrows with wisdom and compassion. (coughs) Accepting our life as it is such an amazing, powerful thing to talk about. When we let go of our resistance to life as it actually is. We let go of resistance. We're letting go of our identification with part of our conditioned self. We're actually letting go of part of our ego structure for the moment, for the moment. It's not like necessarily permanent. And as this letting go occurs, it's as though the walls of a cramped prison cell are crumbling and these walls come down and what remains is vast open spaciousness. When we let go of our resistance to how we think it has to be and we open to what is, what remains is this openness of being and in this spaciousness there are room for there's room for life there's room for the whole catastrophe there's room for the impermanence and the joy and the suffering there's room in spaciousness and this spaciousness that's our natural state it's it's who each and every one of us are. It's not some faraway thing we reach for. It's something that we uncover by letting go. The spaciousness brings us to, or helps us meet and learn to trust the luminous emptiness of our true nature. And the spaciousness helps us know and since the profound web of interconnection between all of us. We can't force this spaciousness to happen with our ego efforts, but rather it's through relaxing with life as it is, and through practicing over and over non-grasping and non-aversion, that the wide open space and calm of equanimity is discovered. This big, this balancing force. So I am so grateful that I have had and still do have teachers who are mature human beings (coughs) who have come to peace with life who are not afraid of how life really is. Who, you know, teachers who have what I call surf the big waves. You can tell I'm from the beach in San Diego. I can't help it. You know, I know the hair and the whole thing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, these teachers who are mature big beings have equanimity in the face of my dramas that I bring them. And I'm so grateful to them for that because that equanimity, then, shows me a way, a possible way of being, with life, with the waves. So I was at one retreat and I was in my big drama, and I go in there to the teacher. I, you know, I said, God, my whole body, I feel this dense, heavy, feeling of despair and hopelessness. It's, it feels like it's never ever going to end. And this teacher, with sort of twinkling eyes and sort of right on the verge of a giggle with all this kindness in his eyes he looks at me and goes oh hopeless despair very good (laughs) (laughs) he said look look closely at that and it was it was it was it was the energy that he said it It was just like oh great you know it's sort of like a kid if you bring him a caterpillar or something, Say, oh, wow, let's really look at this. He was trying to help me see that I could be interested, I could look closely, I could be curious, I didn't have to be identified, I didn't have to be caught, just, oh, helpless despair, isn't that awesome that a person like this would feel that? <laughs> so, and I'm so um, grateful to the Buddha who 2,500 years ago said, look closely. You don't have to run away if there's a difficulty, if there's a contraction. You don't have to avoid it or look the other way because that will never bring you peace. But look closely. And I'm so grateful that this great being came along and gave these extraordinarily strange instructions for human beings. because because I know I would not have figured this one out. <laughs> we, we humans do the exact opposite. In the face of something uncomfortable or, or, or scary or, or, you know, hopeless despair, we go the other way. The last thing I would have thought of would be to have looked closely and be interested in, oh, isn't that wonderful? So gratitude to the Buddha for that huge huge equanimity, that wisdom. I was a a major, major teacher for me, um, starting in the mid-seventies with Stephen Levine and um, stories, many, many stories about Stephen Levine, he's a great teacher. Um, He was once teaching out at Yucca Valley where we um, now teach a lot and he was teaching a meditation retreat and had the mic on like I have and uh, I've been at Yaka Valley, I've been there many, 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 many years every spring we go and lead a retreat out there and there's a lot of earthquakes out there. I don't know if any of you have been at any of them, I've been at tons of them. But this one, this was in the mid 70s, was a huge earthquake during the meditation with the whole hall full and Stephen sitting there with the mic on and it was loud there was a rumbling in the earth and then a rumbling in the building and the windows were crashing and things were flapping and people instantly started screaming and running (laughs) and Stephen sitting there on the mic didn't move he just went (laughs) (laughs) ah. it was like the zen master going you know going when it rains it pours he just practiced opening. And he said, it's fine if you want to go out, or if you want to stay in, that's okay. Ah, but let go. Mm. Soften your belly. Look closely. It was just such an awesome moment. And his, the power of his equanimity funked everybody into such a, p- a place that's bigger than the fear that comes through the body-mind in a huge earthquake. This practice, as many of you know, of of just letting go, softening the body, softening in the belly is a practice that I particularly choose to do hundreds of times a day as a way of practicing mindfulness of the body, but also practicing over and over, just letting go. And everybody right now, without changing anything, you can all do it. Just soften your belly. Yeah, just notice that you can let go any moment. And in that relaxing, there's some places in the body almost always that start creeping in with a little holding or tightness. Often they're just all these um, subtle places that we wouldn't even hardly look. Ah, in the relaxing, there's this possibility of spaciousness, of remembering. One more story. (coughs) During the last few years of my mother's leukemia, she loved listening to Stephen Levine tapes. So I would bring her boxes of whole retreats I'd been to on death and dying, like a seven-day retreat in a box, and and then I'd leave it with her, and next time I'd come back, she'd know everything everybody in the whole retreat said by heart. She loved these tapes, and she would listen to them over and over. And she picked up this phrase that Stephen often says. Which is a famous phrase it says, "This too shall pass." Mm-hmm. It's an equanimity phrase. And she would use it at the beginning as sort of jokes, like if my grandmother was complaining again about the wrong bathroom or the wrong slippers or, r- my mother'd kind of lean over and said, "This too shall pass." you know mm-hmm. So she would make these little jokes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> then, um, and I, I was amazing for me because my mom, who would normally talk about, you know the what's on sale at the mall was making these Dharma jokes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then she also started using um, this phrase when she would have all these illnesses that go Mm -hmm. with leukemia or various surgeries or procedures. And and then things would be maybe hard, and she'd say, well, this this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. And I just have to mention, even though we're running a bit over that, when I first met Stephen Levine, who taught her this phrase, he drove this old, beat-up Volkswagen van, and on the back was one of those old, beat-up bumper stickers that said, "This too shall pass." <laughs> <laughs> so when my mom said this, you know, I always thought, "God, well, she has—she's in a lineage here." Anyway, um, she kept getting better from all these illnesses for way outliving her prognosis. But finally, she had the sickness that we all knew, she knew, we knew she was not going to be getting better from this. And she was really just a matter of days until death, very weak, eyes closed, and I was sitting with her and I just asked how she was doing, Is there anything she needed, and she opened her eyes and just had just enough energy to say, actually she whispered this too. And I knew and she knew what she meant that and i said it out loud i said yes it's true this too shall pass this that you're experiencing right now is going to end and we both knew that we meant her dear precious lifetime was coming to an end She, I saw in her eyes a depth of equanimity and this tender warmth of compassion. And it was the equanimity of, of knowing the truth that everything passes and the compassion of feeling the, compassion for herself and for the family and for the sorrow of saying goodbye. But it was held in this sense that everything comes and everything goes and there was a quality, a deep quality of peace with it. I have eternal gratitude to Stephen Levine Mm -hmm. for being the Dharma gate for my mother. And watching her eventually use the teachings she learned to actually have such a graceful, beautiful death. Oh. Well, I have this beautiful Rilke poem, but it's not here. So must have fallen out in the car. So let me see what I would say to end. I can't quote the beautiful poem, but I can tell you that it's about autumn. And the poet is mentioning how everything um, falls, and even the earth seems to fall out of the stars. And he said, and he said, and, and look around, you'll see that everything falls. It's the, it's the lot of everyone. But also notice that there's this, the hand of tenderness holding us all as we fall. And Rilke didn't mean there was a guy with a beard, you know. Mm-hmm. Th- this great tenderness is the, the great heart of wisdom and compassion And it is the great web of interconnection that holds us all and from which we cannot fall. And because of it, we can rest in the spaciousness of equanimity. So I thank you.